This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about the pandemic and the importance of information at a time of great uncertainty. This might not seem like a major issue right now. In many ways, we're swimming in information about COVID-19. As I noted in our last episode about the state of the healthcare system right now, the COVID-19 dashboard has become a fixture of life for so many Americans. Of course, there is a lot of information that we're lacking right now that would be valuable in the fight against the virus. But compared to the early days of the pandemic, we're in a completely different world. That old world, the one where much of the public and our leadership was desperately seeking information on this new threat, that is where this week's guest found a greater purpose. Trevor Bedford is a scientist, a professor actually, in the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center here in Seattle. Which means that, yeah, he was busy in the early days of the pandemic. But he did find time for a kind of side hustle sharing information about the novel coronavirus on his Twitter feed. He became a must-follow for anyone seeking the latest on the virus. But Bedford wasn't just sharing his considerable knowledge on the virus. He was also helping to aggregate data on the virus and show scientists and the science-minded how to use that data through a platform he helped create called NextStrain. Two-plus years into the pandemic, Bedford is continuing to do this work, now with more than 400,000 Twitter followers and a MacArthur Genius Grant to his name. The pandemic has changed all of our lives, and it's certainly changed Bedford's. We wanted to know how. So, as part of this year's Crosscut Festival, we had Crosscut reporter Hannah Weinberger talk with Bedford about the last two years— and how his very particular experience with this difficult period has impacted the way he thinks about his work and the pandemic. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Dr. Bedford, welcome. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for the introduction. Absolutely. Um, so Trevor, if I can call you that, um, in your first test of science communication for the day, how do you usually describe what you do as a computational virologist to people outside your field in a few sentences? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> so most of it is working with viral genome data. So the coronavirus genome has these 30,000 letters. And as it transmits from person to person, little mistakes are made just by the kind of act of that virus replicating. And then you can uh, take nose swabs from, from people that are sick, sequence the virus out of them, and then use the differences in that genome to reconstruct a family tree of, those, uh, of how this virus is related, and then use that family tree to understand things about how the virus is spreading, mutations that might be making it spread faster, and kind of a lot of what's actually going on that is maybe hidden to looking at something like case counts or, or kind of broader data. Oh my gosh. So I'm really sensitive to typos in my life, but it sounds like for you, they have a, a special meaning. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So did you view 
platforms like Twitter as public health information services before the pandemic? Mm -hmm. I So I've been on Twitter, I think I joined in 2009. Um, and that sounds right. Um, the uh, And maybe more active since 2011. There's There's been this thing of science Twitter for you know, forever. Um, and that's actually been a really, really nice platform to kind of share papers, um, share other papers that you're reading and kind of there's a there's a nice scientific community. And so that was that was entire the entirety of my kind of real experience with Twitter in, in January 2020. And then when the um, when things started to kick off, there was like a lot of scientists talking to each other in science Twitter that then kind of ballooned out to, you know, to a much larger, much larger thing after that. Right. So it sounds like kind of this this bubble that's for work, but it exists in this larger platform. So thinking mm -hmm. back to early 2020, was your intention to be sharing information with the entire public or did you stumble into that role? Yeah, it was it was absolutely stumbling. And it was also like where can think of some specific tweets where like there uh there was some early work looking at kind of serial interval and so forth and so copied a paper there and then realized that i needed to then explain what serial interval means and so forth and trying because there were people listening in and then trying to kind of um even if the kind of foremost target might be other scientists of initial and um trying to kind of make it fully or as understandable as possible while still keeping things terse um, to uh, to people who aren't uh, kind of professionals. Right. So, you know, it sounds like you were already there, but there's this whole new set of eyes because of the nature of the moment. Uh, and you've been talking shop with other academics and researchers, and you found yourself in a position to share with everyone, apart from thinking about, you know, in 240 characters or so, communicating like how else does this change in audience in in the twitter format affect the way you communicate mm -hmm. yeah um it's been it's like yeah I've, I've really liked it as basically a blog format and kind of thinking of twitter as as microblog and can um throughout the pandemic uh if i'm interested in a particular topic like um case reporting rate or something and i want to to look into it and then it makes something where i can i can spend a week looking into things spend a um a couple hours writing up a twitter thread about it share that with um with the world but it's like meant as meant for every meant for colleagues meant for the world and meant for uh kind of media as well and then it's something that that it's like i feel like comfortable to talk about this thing with um with others if you want to get in in contact Right. So noticing that you have this new audience looking at you, what made you want to lean into that role of a kind of pseudo public science communicator? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so so it it was mostly, especially early on, of just how how terrible the information kind of ecosystem was, where we have like snake flu and things like this that are no. that are circulating widely and uh, and so the yeah the first the first bite of this was the hiv inserts preprint that um that was um 
kind of you know fairly poorly done and and but then was immediately circulating widely and so then kind of felt need to to respond to that and kind of show like why you know why this is this is flawed um and then that immediately kind of was more yeah more popular than other you know other things that i was i was tweeting about at the time and so that's then stayed since yeah since then of like trying to like generally the um yeah generally the information ecosystem has improved since january 2020 but it's still like um there's huge amounts of questions that everyone has about ba.2.12.1 and then you can try to like dig into papers and Met archive or whatever, but it's it's helpful to have scientists actually kind of giving some some summary of what they what they think is going on. Right, especially scientists who really appreciate how quickly things can develop and spread, and uh, you know take ownership of the conversation like viruses do. Um, hmm. So you have access to a lot of information that people want. How do you decide what to share? Yeah, um, so there's some. Um, there's like, it's a combination of things that I'm interested in. So I mentioned the case reporting rate as something that I was I, you know, like curious to dig into for a week. And then other things that are like um, in the media or particularly I'm getting repeated emails from uh, NIH CDC reporters or whatever on, on BA.2.12.1. And so rather than trying to respond in detail to everyone, uh, instead, it's more efficient to um, to make a make a thread and kind of have that be uh, be shared. Wow! So, um, you mostly have been speaking with researchers before all of this. Who is hmm. the audience that you want, and who is the audience that you think you have? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that um, that the audience that I want. And maybe think I have are people that they they for most of the things that I'm writing they probably need a, a bachelor's in biology sort of sort of thing. I'm not. Um, it's it's too hard to talk about things like well antigenic drift and so forth. If like if if I were to try to make it for everyone, it would it would balloon out where you'd have to write essays to kind of explain actually what's you know what's going on and i haven't felt like i could commit that level of time and that would probably be better for for a blog than than twitter anyway i don't know um, i see you going yeah. on tiktok with whatever's in your kitchen and being like today we're going to do <laughs> antigenetic drift or <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah maybe um, later maybe later um and so yeah and then so so then relying on on it to be concise and as accurate as possible with the which scientific jargon helps with um and then kind of that can get can get picked up by reporters and explained or by others and and explained more and, and not trying to yeah not trying to do the as broad of science science communication as as you might imagine did you see yourself in that role immediately or or have you been trying to toe the line between sharing information that's scientifically accurate but not so jargony that people haven't found it useful yeah um yeah i think it's like it it 
I I would if if the Twitter following was smaller and like still the scientists that would be easy to just be completely in in the on the jargon side of things have tried to make things more accessible um, with the kind of as the um, as the following increased um, and I do pay attention it is helpful having people responding and I can see kind of where you know where it didn't line up and where um, where the point that I was trying to make maybe wasn't was not caught by a, a large a number of people and then we'll we'll adjust really does anything come to mind um that's going to be that's going to be hard um like yeah throughout there's a number of things like throughout of like infections versus cases and trying to trying to kind of make it very clear to people that when we talk about cases we're not talking about all the infections that are happening and and so forth and so there's like then language to be to be very careful with there um in terms of what um yeah uh what's actually happening right right you know i covered this for a year and a half and i still catch myself calling the virus covid so i totally appreciate that you have to be really sensitive when you're talking to people who haven't been in school for as many years as you and spending their time tracking this kind of stuff um and you touched on this a little bit but there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. Does the foreknowledge that what you share may get contextualized in a way that you are maybe nervous about affect the way that you communicate with the public or people in public health or policy? Yeah, this is this is a huge issue for the pandemic where um, where where I've ended up. Um, uh, like at the very yeah let's let's start from the beginning so in <laughs> um in early 2020 i like others i was it felt like it felt like the cdc or the who should be the one like like raising this huge alarm and that it's not the not the like individual scientist role to to say like this is you know there this pandemic is coming um but then it seemed like their CDC, WHO at all were were overly concerned about a like scaring people when people should have been should have been scared, and that might then reflect on how comms has been done by by public health since then, where like it's been there's been a like always trying to think two steps ahead of like we want people to to uh to wear masks so we're going to to talk about uh how good we're not going to talk about how much better n95s are than cloth masks because we we're afraid that not everyone could get in 95s and then that like like rather than just being just completely on it with the the scientific accuracy and so so with what I've done is uh, is trying, yeah, trying to be fully scientific accurate, ac scientifically accurate, trying not to think two steps ahead. Um, though it has meant that for things that I'm not fully kind of an expert in, that I will tend not to not to engage in that side of it because I don't like I don't feel confidence in 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 that uh, in that topic but yeah on things um on things that i am confident in of just um of just going with the um yeah 
only thinking of the accuracy rather than thinking about the comms. If only more of us didn't weigh in on things we <laughs> didn't understand sometimes. So it yeah. sounds like, you know, does this make you think about the value of transparency? So, um, yeah, and this is this is this is hugely important through the pandemic, and that the um, that having scientists be be just acting in their role as as scientists and trying to um, and also also having yeah having things be this this um, well yeah let's take a step back we're like it's um it's been it's felt way better to have the analyses that we're doing up for the world on nextrain.org where then i can point point fellow scientists to but other people can you know are welcome to look at it it gets there's there's a number of people that will be confused but that's like that's okay it's good that the information is um is there and the same thing with kind of the um maybe the public health reporting where like, or uh, where it's been better to uh, write to like, rather than like having a reporting chain up to um, local, state, national public health, that it's like um, technical reports or whatever. And then that's only seen by this small group of people uh, easier to um, to post things on, on Twitter uh, and then kind of then share share that with with these groups and um, that way things are um yeah things aren't aren't gated right so kind of a collective learning experience and realizing that um having the information out there regardless of everyone's level of science literacy will help move the ball forward and hopefully people will find people who can answer their questions um, yeah 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 it's just it's been much much easier and better to have have things be pub as public as as possible, um, and then, yeah, even if the intended audience is not the entire public, right? Um, and so you have all this information out there now. What kind of responses do you usually get? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so it's in terms of Twitter posting a new thing that it's the normal, I think, issue with the platform and probably any of these social media platforms where you can get a thousand likes. Uh, but the things that you notice are the, there's like uh, the recent um, recent post about, yeah, BA.2.12.1, uh, where we have um, half of people saying that, uh, that I'm minimizing long COVID and like minimizing by saying it has flu-like drift, that it's comparing to flu. And then that's going, you know, that's, horrible and how could you do this and the other half saying like COVID is over or you know why are you trying to scare us you're fear-mongering um and so there's like if you know if things are are at a pretty good place I have a roughly equal number of people shouting at me from one one side and and from the other side have you ever regretted engaging with the public um no, I think the uh, the regret might just be now there's this freighted with responsibility to um, to uh, like keep things up and to um, to to do a good job with this, but not the you know, not the actual act. 
Right. And you know, I want to talk with you a little bit about uh, information sharing and science as well. But before we get there, did you ever expect to be talking about a social media platform with regard to your work this much? No, definitely not. Um, <laughs> I think um, I, I would I would note that yeah that that this theme that resulted in nextstrain.org and kind of having something that's public and real time and like we want analyses shared as quickly and openly as possible is is the same kind of underlying motivation that is pushing for the kind of Twitter analyses. Um, so that's definitely been there. Um, yeah, but the, the, like how heavily, heavily, uh, inflected things are with social media was definitely not, not expected. Right. And so with all of these responses and the public and public health out there, seeing all this information that you're putting out there, does that affect how you think about yourself as a scientist or, or how you do science? Yeah, um, I think that what's been tricky here for everyone um, is that pandemic has moved so quickly that that generally you want to do thorough, accurate science. Peer review really helps with this. But by the time the paper comes out, often the thing that like you really wanted to address is no longer you know, no longer as 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 relevant. And so. So then we can kind of push towards faster preprints, and that's been, a, I think, an actual, you know, really good thing for uh, scientific understanding of the the pandemic. And then even more than that, if we have something that like is happening today or something that um, uh, of pushing for something like Twitter or something something that's kind of or a technical report that's not um, not even not even to the level of a preprint, but being able to have scientific research happen in a faster pace than what's been um, kind of the traditional um, slower but more accurate form of things. Right. Does putting so much information out there in preprint form where science is kind of iterating on itself rapidly, do you think that that's affecting how the public understands what science is? Yeah, I'd, I'd hope so. I think that I really didn't like and still don't like the um, the like standard way that things would happen would be uh, for the in terms of public consumption that the uh, scientific process happens paper bounces back and forth and peer review it's hidden away then it gets published and then it's attended with a, a university press release and then it's reported on from the press release generally not from the paper and then and then it's taken as truth because it's like gone through this this process where and often be often be wrong um quite often be wrong and now now i think people realize how with preprints and all of this that like this reported on finding is not necessarily true or this particular paper is not necessarily true and it might i i'm sure it's more confusing for um for the, the non-scientists but that's that's perhaps like more of a and more of an accurate understanding of actually kind of how scientists are approaching things as well. 
Right. It's my job to read your preprints and your papers and not the press release to try to figure out what questions to ask you so I can explain it better. <laughs> it's not all on you. Um, so a quick reminder for our audience to make sure to get your questions in the chat section because we will be asking some of them soon. But before then, um, getting to your scientific work, Next Strain has accomplished some incredible stuff. How has the pandemic changed the way that you view open data's role in the future of medicine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the um, the genomic sequence data, there's been a, a real push here in the last five-ish years um, that has been pretty remarkable of going from um, back, and I think like the inflection point was really the uh, West African Ebola epidemic, uh, whereas before that, the standard practice would be there'd be an outbreak, there'd be samples collected, things, it was hard, too hard to do the sequencing in, in real time enough to actually inform understanding of the outbreak. And instead, you'd end up with a paper a year after the year after the outbreak happened, and then you'd release the sequence data then. And then with Ebola and uh, Zika, and then very much with, um, with COVID, uh, a kind of a push to just share the sequence data immediately. And this has been, um, and then it's allowed allowed things like Nextrain, but then we have a bunch of other other endeavors uh, like CoSpectrum and CoVariance and Outbreak.info and, and so forth that are relying on data that are shared very generously by producers all over the world, um, curated by folks at GISAID and NCBI, and really like there's a, a fantastic ecosystem here now. Part of what's worked well with that is like each genome, viral genome, is this very kind of granular thing that that like you have those thirty thousand letters and you have some very obvious uh, metadata to attach to it of when it was collected and where it was collected. So it makes kind of pooling that information pretty um, pretty straightforward in a way that if you were to have other scientific data, it's not often as easy to do that that pooling from a bunch of different bunch of different groups and so and this is because we've been sticking stuff yeah. up our nose for a couple of years that we're able to, to get this. yeah 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 and um and the the variant this worry legitimate worry about the variants kind of really pushed things as well where in 2020 there was pretty good sequence data but it wasn't at all like it became in 2021 when we had the variants of concern emerge and then each country started really uh, countries across the world started really funding uh, the sequencing efforts. Right. And so on that note, you have, you know, proof of concept for why this kind of surveillance can be really helpful. At the same time, you know, while we're reading news articles about BA.4, BA.5, we're kind of reeling back a lot of the surveillance um, and tracing that we've been doing the past few years. Uh, what, what are we still missing when it comes to the data collection we do to keep tabs on the virus in the U.S.? Like, can we improve? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so throughout pandemic, but especially in kind of this genomic side, um, we've really um, relied heavily on uh, U.K. and Denmark, probably more than um, in terms of the uh, in terms of the actual kind of connection to epidemiology, uh, South Africa has been amazing with the kind of early warnings and, and detection. Um, the US is doing a really good job sequencing. Kind of we have 
as much sequencing as, as anyone. Um, but because the way the US public health system works, it's really hard to take that nasal swab that was this confirmed case um, and actually connect it back to like knowing their vaccination history and um, even knowing their age or even knowing if it was a hospitalized case or they, they may have died later. And because, because of how fractured the uh, healthcare system is, you can't do these large scale analyses in the US the way that you can in say the UK where they have, um, have everything um, connected because of their health system. And, um, and so that's made it hard to know things specifically for the US like, right now is BA.2.12.1 that's spreading quite rapidly. Is that spreading because people are getting reinfected that were infected in the initial Omicron wave with BA1? Or is it due to intrinsic transmissibility increase and the people that are largely getting BA.2.12.1 weren't people were, um, were other people um, that weren't getting infected and that didn't get infected in the initial Omicron wave? Right. So if you manage to socially distance, we're talking about transmissibility, you know, maybe mm -hmm. you're still susceptible because you don't have the antibodies that you need right now. Um, mm -hmm. So could we do this improved surveillance? Like what would we need to get there? Yeah, there, the, the strategies that, um, that have worked in the U.S., I think getting something at a national scale is probably in, in, impossible at the moment. Um, the strategies that work at a smaller scale are kind of uh, state level or jurisdictional, uh, a kind of county level where you can, uh, a confirmed case is reported to public health, say to Washington Department of Health, and then they're able to connect it up to the sequencing that's happening in the state at Washington Public Health Labs, but also at University of Washington. Um, uh, and the WADUH then has a database that actually has that connection. And it's it's a lot of a lot of work on their part to get that to get that happening. And the other way that I've seen this is through like um, uh, Kaiser Permanente in California has some really good papers for having the HMO where they have kind of all of the data they can actually uh, connect things as as well. So locally, we're we're doing okay. It sounds like. Yeah, um, Washington is is in a really good place um, with kind of with um, with all the genomic surveillance side. Right. Um, given that, though, you know where we are right now. What ideas or concerns are you most interested in communicating to people? Interesting. Um, I think that that what's what's really going to be important and and will take a lot of work to figure out is kind of why are people uh, immunologically, why are people getting reinfected? And the virus is going to keep evolving. It's going to be like flu where people are going to get infected every every couple of years, every year, something uh, something quite quite common. And as those reinfections occur, your immune system builds up kind of more and more antibodies that target different parts of the virus and different forms of the virus. And we want to get through booster doses or vaccination, kind of improved vaccination platforms, a way to make a really broad, durable immune response that kind of keeps the virus from being able to to run away from it so easily. And um, and we've like there have been pushes for a universal flu vaccine, which you may have heard that 
that that term before because this is this is you know, this was the thing with flu for for decades, and so it will it will still then be a you know a real push for uh, for COVID to have vaccination that is is yeah is more um, more robust to evolution. So can we make those vaccines fast enough to meet the the sequencing data? Uh, so so there is a strategy that. Sh- that is probably what we'll end up with in the short term. That isn't a bad strategy uh, uh, um, where we have enough sequencing data. You can kind of know that, well, right now things are this version of Omicron. So then um, Moderna Pfizer should start kind of swap the vaccines to that and then deploy those in, uh, in September, October. And we can do that basically every every year with a like May June sort of decision for a fall vaccination campaign. And that should match pretty well, um, but it won't always match perfectly if something is is emerging over the summer or if you have multiple circulating things. Um, and so, yeah, ideally, but it's more difficult, you'd figure out some way to have, um, to have multivalent vaccines that kind of include different versions, different forms of the virus, different forms of okay. uh, that would give you kind of a broader immune response that would be more just yeah more robust to to the ongoing evolution, and that's that's a harder that's more of a challenge, um, but it's something that I'm sure like the field will be will be working on. Right. So it sounds kind of like if I were to try to find an ag- analogy in my own life. When I go outside in Seattle, I wear lots of layers because I don't really quite know what the weather's going to be. So I have to be prepared for anything. All right. Um, yeah, that's fair. Okay. <laughs> what does it feel like when people ask you what's going to happen next? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, uh, I try to be. I try not to gate the information where I'm happy to um, happy to talk about what you know what I think is uh, might be happening. Um, yeah, it it is like being freighted with this responsibility to kind of know know what's what's happening. Um, yeah, um, I yeah, uh, and I've definitely been wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have a great answer there. No, no, no. It's great. I mean, like, obviously, this is something that you really think about. There's a lot of responsibility here. And do people seem to expect you to say things with certainty? Oh, um, no, I don't think so. But I think they they definitely expect an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. um, Yeah. And I think that conveying proper levels of uncertainty is one of the, the kind of more difficult things in any of the scientific scientific communication between scientists, scientific communication out to the to the public, um, where, yeah, where that side of things is just so difficult to get right, um, even if you can kind of be in the right direction of like how, yeah, how confident are you in this, um, this particular finding or this particular um, forecast. Right. And that's not what people want to hear in a crisis, but hopefully this might build up our, our resilience to learning in the middle of a information vacuum. Um, so now, because I have to ask, you know, what's next? Um, yeah, I, I think we, um, we touched on that a bit 
earlier where like uh i think the general pattern will be something that's a little like flu where um where covid evolves really quickly or SARS-CoV-2 evolves really quickly um and like so far if we look at look look at it in terms of its sequence evolution and the part of the virus that really matters here and spike protein uh it's evolving about twice as fast as the fastest seasonal flu virus um it has a it has it is significantly more intrinsically transmissible so a flu infection where um no one has immunity would probably infect two additional people uh whereas a covid a SARS-CoV-2 infection where where no one has immunity at this point would infect six-ish other people. And so those two things combined will just mean that COVID circulates more than flu um, every year. However, with immunity um, that we have, the infection fatality rate, the proportion of people who die from infection is is actually pretty comparable to seasonal flu at this at this point. So we have a situation where we can expect lots of COVID circulating uh, at a individual infections are likely to be mild um, and are probably not so harmful generally, but there's enough infections happening that it will be a kind of a major um, major source of mortality and morbidity across the population every every winter. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Before we run out of time, I want to get to some audience questions. Um, What's an example of something you've learned to communicate in a way that makes more sense to non-scientists or people outside your field? Oh man, um, I don't. I don't have a good answer there. I think the um, the like simple thing that I started with of um, thinking about these um, these typos, these mutations, and as being able to understand a, a family tree and using that analogy of family tree has really has really been been helpful um as opposed to like the uh the initial push for more technical terms of like phylogeny or something like this that it's um yeah it's it's talking about this as like ancestry of the the virus seems to um seems to make sense interesting um who do you follow on Twitter that you think does a good job explaining the virus that regular folks might understand? Um, yeah, I think that um, maybe maybe to answer this very um, uh, obliquely, that the like my favorite Twitter follow is definitely uh, Zanep, um, where she like 
and there's a um a couple other people like michael lynn um that uh that have generally been um uh just okay thinking for themselves <laughs> and then uh if if they have something that they believe that does not fit the the um kind of prime nar primary narrative about say aerosol transmission or um um or whatever it is that they're okay being um being loud about it and then also like she's she's been right <laughs> uh even you know even with these things that are not um not necessarily you know always agreed on and yeah and so yeah so people that are are okay being um being uh yeah fairly um outspoken but also um have a history of being being correct about about these things right so this next question relates to something you and i have chatted about a little bit before um is there a point where this extra job of communication becomes a distraction from your quote-unquote real job yeah um so it 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 definitely depends on like what you what you're trying to accomplish where um where the main the main thing that scientists are usually judged on and the thing that you're usually trying to do to push forward science is to write papers and to get a paper through peer review and then have that as part of the literature and um through the pandemic i think early on that um that things were moving so quickly and the information vacuum was so intense that definitely the best thing to do was to be focusing on more of the media engagements and twitter and so forth and trying to kind of help help everyone understand what's um what's going on but then as things have become less um less of a crisis it's been um it's pushed me to like focus more on the the paper side of things and do less on less on twitter and um and i can imagine that as a kind of as a as a general thing that um that there's there's real importance to having the kind of um rigorous accurate peer-reviewed science happen um and that that kind of yeah that you need you need you need enough of both to um to actually be be useful here and as things continue to become hopefully continue to become less you know less of a crisis we can kind of push more towards the um towards the paper side of things right so it sounds like you kind of schedule your scientific life aligned with how crisis-y things are yes yes absolutely very much so. um another audience question is have you experienced pushback from fellow scientists and in what ways yeah um I think that um, so the um, uh, yeah fairly long story the uh, the, the uh, so the early on in um, in February um, 2020 when we had the initial sequencing that we were doing with Seattle flu study of um, of viruses in in Washington State and in Seattle um, that we um, uh, that we kind of managed to do that sequencing before um, before pretty much kind of anyone else was in the um, in the country uh, discover this uh, 
a WA2 um, uh, virus and this community case. Um, and then that, that from the um, mutations, it looked very much uh, like it was directly descended from, from WA1. And the kind of the simple statistical analysis had it as a 3% chance of this, this resemblance, genomic resemblance being, um, being possible if they were kind of independent introductions. So then I had the, the tweet saying that we have had cryptic transmission for the last um, six weeks. That goes very far. Um, and, and that turned out, um, I'm pretty certain at this point, to be wrong. That it was it was a second introduction, and that it was that three percent chance that that happened, um, and I still think it was the right call to make from an even just from an accuracy perspective. But when that paper was getting peer reviewed, one of the reviewers was was very um, very adamant that it was completely inappropriate to be announcing this over over Twitter in a in a quote freewheeling Twitter thread. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that, that there is, um, there was, and I'm sure there still is kind of a, a number of scientists who would prefer things to not, you know, to be like, and it is, it is a spectrum where you, you don't want, you'd like things to be more accurate and like things to be more, um, uh, uh, yeah, like it's, it's a real trade-off between being more accurate and being, being fast. And I think you know, I've with all Twitter and all of this, I've been more on the, the fast side and have been have been wrong um, because of that on, on occasions. Right, but this is a kind of applied literature, right? You know, you, you've noted mm -hmm. that it's important to publish papers for the scientific literature, but for it to make an impact, sometimes this communication really matters. And uh, yeah. it, it looks like we have run out of time. Trevor, thank you so much for all the work you're doing. Uh, to make information transparent, for helping translate some complex stuff in ways that really benefit the rest of us. There's one audience question that I think would be a great way to sign off. For someone who does not use Twitter to get information, how can people follow your research in real time if they're also maybe not someone who would use NextStrain? Um, yeah, I, that's a really good question. I don't... I'm trying to, so I'm thinking of, there's, there's, there's not an obvious, like there's, so there's a lot of, um, if you're in this, like the weeds of this um, variant side of things, there'll be all of these things like Cove Spectrum and Cove Variance and like GitHub discussion board to talk about labeling the next Pango lineage and all, all of these things. Um, but, and then like, there's not, there's not like an obvious, yeah, I, I wish there was, but there's not an obvious like go to this website and you'll you'll get a a kind of a layperson friendly description of what's happening with the the evolution of of SARS-CoV-2. Um, I think I would this is then um, you know fairly biased. Uh, I have a couple of talks on my website um, at bedford.io if you go to the talk section that um, especially, recent BBI talk that posted to YouTube that will kind of give a give a fairly broad overview of what's going on. Um, Is that Brotman Beatty Institute? Yeah. Great. Yes, yes. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, Trevor. Absolutely. 
And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Trevor and Hannah for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.